This podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Vitz School of Governance. For more information, visit visit their website on www.vitz.ac.za/wsg. Welcome to the Vets School of Governance to our series of public lectures by distinguished speakers. Today we we have uh, a very distinguished uh, speaker, Ms. Boholo Genewendo, who is the former Minister of Investment, Trade and Industry in, in Botswana. She's currently a member of the United Nations Secretary General's high-level panel on digital cooperation, as well as participating in the group on financing for development. She is also a member of uh, the World Economic Forum, WEF, uh, Global Futures Council for Global Public Goods on the Fourth Industrial Revolution. She's also one of the uh, World Economic Forum's young global leaders. Uh, she runs her own firm, Kewenendo Advisory. At the time when she was Minister of Industry, Investment and Trade in, in Botswana, she, she was also pivotal in leading the negotiations on the continuity trade agreement with the United Kingdom, which gave greater certainty to both consumers and exporters. And this agreement was between the SACO countries plus Mozambique and the United Kingdom against the backdrop of Brexit. She holds uh, an MSc in international economics from, from Sussex, and she has passion for, for businesses in the African continent. And the theme that she will be sharing with us is rebuilding African economies during and after COVID-19. There have been a lot of questions about the state of the continent during the COVID pandemic and, and whether we, we will have the resilience to come out of this pandemic unscathed. Some have reflected uh, on the earlier periods in the 1980s and in the, the 1990s when many African countries uh, faced a severe sovereign debt crisis. So we really want to gain insights uh, from Ms. Kenewendo on, on some of the strategies to take African economies out of uh, the crisis mode, the business opportunities that exist, as well as broader lessons on leading change in, in times of turbulence. All of these themes, they reflect our own interests as VET School of Governance, a school that interfaces with public servants, with public sector leaders, and produces or develops programs in governance, public policy, and, and development management. So we look forward to doing more events such as these. Without further ado, I am going to hand over to former minister, Ms. Boholo Genewendo, uh, to give her public lecture, followed by questions and discussions via the chat function. Thank you. Thank you very much, Prof. I want to thank you for having invited me and for everyone else that is joining us this evening. Thank you so much for the honor of your time. It is very strange for me uh, to be given this public lecture virtually, and there is no one on screen. So if you see me also zoning out, it means I am missing you. I am used to connecting with uh, the people that I talk to and understanding what their backgrounds are. Um, and so really COVID has certainly changed the way that we do business and the way that we interact. But given all of that, I again was not sure about 
the audience that will be joining us today to understand what their backgrounds are, how deep can I go into the background of the AFCFTA, and just how much of that little bit of technical side do people understand. So uh, bear with me if I go a little bit on a tangent uh, to talk about some of the technical things, and then I will make sure I come back and wrap it up with the opportunities as has been discussed and, and so forth. So as I start, I uh, want to remind all of us, especially the scholars of Pan-Africanism, that Nkuruma in 1963, he delivered a speech on uh, African unity and it is quite uh, famously he cited uh, that we must unite or sink. I remember very well and as I was uh, preparing for this uh, there was one part of the speech that really caught my attention and I wanted to reiterate it to you uh, that he said we all want a united Africa not only in our concept of what unity can connect but united in our common desire to move forward together and dealing with all the problems that can be best solved only on a continental basis. And while this aspiration, this political idea, aspiration for political and economic unification in Africa goes back to our post-colonial days, it then just kind of died out following the coup in Ghana and the oust of uh, Kwame Nkrumah. But it was then resuscitated when we had the first institutional commitment to economic integration in uh, the June 1991 Abuja Treaty, which established the Africa Economic Community. Again, I wasn't sure of the background and how much I should give, so I just decided to go as far uh, back as I could, just so I can show just how monumental where we are today is and how these dreams come from uh, far back. And it is all about that long game, especially when you have the vision for what you want. So the project, once again, following 1991 for about two decades, lost momentum. And it was because of all the instabilities that occurred, the death of political will around implementation of reforms that were necessary in order for us to really start talking about uh, economic and political union. And in a sharp departure from those two years uh, after Abuja Treaty, African leaders went so quickly to uh, sign in the AFCFTA in 2018, to entry into force in 2019, operationalization in 2020, and of course, the trading year in 2021. As you can see, it then following that inertia of about 20 years, there's been a record speed that has happened in really pushing for uh, the implementation of our intra-African trade unification. And this has been one of the most celebrated achievements of the African Union. And now the AFCFTA in operationalization will become the largest free trade area in the world since the establishment of the WTO. I again think this is very momentous. It's a, it's a big deal. It's monumental. 
And why this is monumental is not only that African states and uh, African heads of government have signed up to trading together, have signed this piece of document to say uh, we want to increase intra-African trade. No, it is monumental because we recognize there's a very broad recognition that uh, regional integration will play a very key component for economic progress and for poverty reduction. There are compelling reasons to drive this project forward, to take advantage of these opportunities provided by the new normal and to forestall a return to inertia of the previous two decades. So there's a lot of arguments of why we should be doing this, but of why we should be doing this right now in particular. So all these issues around COVID and added impetus to why we really should be talking about intra-African trade. And I will uh, touch a little bit on that a little later on. So in, in short, if there was really ever a time for us to talk about and to work on economically integrated Africa, it certainly is now. So fundamentally, the AFCFTA will put African economies and African citizens, African entrepreneurs and investors alike on a better economic footing. The agreement will enhance competitiveness and stimulate investment, innovation, economic growth by increasing efficiency and eliminating barriers to trade. The key issue here is that we want to eliminate all barriers to trade and there will be a ripple effects in doing so. And in fact, it will eliminate tariffs on 90% of goods and incrementally apply the same to services at a time. And I want to note this, it will apply incrementally to services at a time when other regions across the world are becoming more inward and they are really rethinking trade agreements and economic integration. I mean, we're yet to see if the tone in the world will change now we're with the Biden administration. But in the past couple of weeks, I mean, President Biden himself has really been talking about buy uh, USA products. So we will see if there is an additional echo to multilateralism uh, going forward. So that is something that we will be keeping an ear out for. So the removal of tariffs on goods in particular is projected to increase the value of intra-Africa trade by 15 to 25 percent by 2040. This will translate to approximately 50 to 70 billion dollars in value and the AFCFTA as most people know uh, will uh, cover a market of more than 1.2 billion people in 54 countries and up to three trillion in combined GDP. And meanwhile, the World Bank has also come out with other figures to say that the agreement could add an additional 76 billion in income to the rest of the world. So again, this is not only an agreement that will work for the continent, but it is one that we anticipate will boost international global trade and add income really to the rest of the world.
I was fortunate to be a part of some of the negotiations for the AFCFTA, and I can tell you definitively that this was not an easy process. And getting here was certainly not as smooth as it comes out, um, you know, in press statements. And I, I watched in uh, on December twenty first, I think it was uh, December fifth, as uh, President Ramaphosa was talking about the trading of AFCFTA in January. 2021. And in the elation, in the mood, I thought, you know, if only the negotiations were as simple as it is coming out in these press statements. And I just wanted to give you a little bit of insights into what went into these negotiations. Again, if you already know, bear with me. I just saw a lot of interaction of young people on Twitter and Facebook. And so I just thought I'd give them a little bit of a background. So again, the negotiations were very intense and they were extensive. And many governments were worried, of course, as with many lobbyists who warned that free trade may open a floodgate for cheap imports that can destroy already ailing economies or very infant and nascent industries that exist in some of our countries. So this was one of the primary concerns and it led to a lot of engagements, particularly around issues of rules of origin, just to ensure that someone doesn't get a product from a third party country, slap on a button and then say it's a made in Africa product and it having access to, to this common market. So there really had to be a lot of work to be hashed out around what really constitutes as an made in Africa, made in Botswana, made in Eswatini and so forth kind of product. And in addition to that, there were also issues around exchanging tariff concessions. And it was eventually agreed that there would be 90% tariff liberalization. But there were also a lot of issues around sensitive products. What are sensitive products? How far can we take sensitive products? How long should we take to liberalize around the sensitive products? And these are the ones that most countries hold dear and consider them to be industries that are so key to their economies that they cannot liberalize uh, in those spaces. So there was a, an agreement about the gradual liberalization eventually into those products. Now, following all of those negotiations, the agreement entered into force 30th May 2019 for the 24 countries that had already deposited their instruments of ratification. And soon after that, the next step was the operational phase of the AFCFTA, which was launched uh, in the, on the 7th of July 2019. And some key instruments that were launched then included the rules of origin, the tariff concessions that I just talked about, the online mechanisms on monitoring the Pan-African payment and settlement systems, the African Trade Observatory. Now, all of these were done then and were launched then. And as of 15th January 2021, 35 countries have deposited their instruments of ratification and the start of trading under the AFCFTA agreement began on the 1st of January 2021 in line with the decision and declaration that was adopted during the 13th extraordinary session of the Assembly of the Union on December 5th, 2020. I think that is enough with the background. I see some chats are coming in. I Please keep them coming and keep me company. I feel like I'm out in the wilderness by myself. So if you just let me know that you're there, I would appreciate it. 
as I was saying, enough with the technical issues. I want us to really talk about that the start of trading was uh, slowed down by uh, COVID, by COVID-19. The onset of COVID-19 really shook a lot of countries. It even shook us in the continent. You know, everyone was really focusing more on what needed to be done to deal with this unknown uh, pandemic, to deal with the ensuing economic crises. So there was a little bit of delay in trading as well. But now that we understand this disease better, <laughs> I see that and I know that there are all these variants now that are messing up um, our understanding of COVID-19, but we at least have some sort of understanding than we did at this time last year in 2020. So now that we have that bit of understanding of the disease and the economic crisis that it has caused, it is important that we recalibrate the way that we think about the AFCFTA intra-African trade and our choices and decisions moving forward to reflect this new reality. So because it is clear now that uh, more than ever, it's important for Africa to fast track the idea of an economically integrated continent. And I say so because when COVID hit, most countries started to really implement those pro protectionist policies that, you know, they, they didn't allow exports of PPE products. And we are seeing that now with the introduction of the vaccine. We've seen it in the EU when they're saying, okay, all the vaccines that are made in the EU should be provided to the EU first before they are exported. And this, for me, continues to be a market distorter to show that multilateralism only works when uh, you you know, it's used and not all the time. So it's important for Africa to trade with itself, to work quite faster to ensuring that the AFCFTA is implemented and that we are able to trade with each other so that as the world looks away, we are able to provide for ourselves and we are able to use our raw materials to, pro to produce goods uh, that will benefit us. I mean, that even brings us to the issue of uh, the vaccine. I've been very vocal about uh, the vaccine and how even the Africa CDC, Africa practitioner scientists should be involved even in research around the vaccine and generating one in the continent. I am sure with the vast knowledge that we have, something could be done. But again, I will talk about this a little later on. I believe that indeed these restrictions that have been imposed by the pandemic present an opportunity not only for the AFCFTA and the member states, but for the Secretariat itself to implement its mission and achieve significant economic benefits during a period of turmoil and change. As you know, they say the best things happen when there is turmoil and when there is change. And as Madame Ngozi usually says, we cannot waste a crisis and we have to make uh, the most out of it by adapting because you can find that sometimes it is that extra wind that was needed to push us forward. And the opportunities in the AFCFTA are many. They are many for young people, they are many for women, for SMEs, for big businesses, for development partners, everyone alike. And many of these opportunities are due to the fact that we're going to have to start somewhat from scratch. 
rebuilding some of the systems from scratch. Because you'll remember that we are talking about intra-African trade now and it being subdued over a period of time, now only resting at about 12 to 15 percent. And that is because our trading infrastructure has mainly been outward looking. It has been to encourage trade with uh, the rest of the world instead of trade with the continent. So we're going to need to start working on the infrastructure uh, that allows us to do that. And infrastructure, I'm not only talking about the physical infrastructure, which is good, uh, but I'm also talking about institutional infrastructure, including financial infrastructure that is needed uh, for us to see the AFCFTA through. So the COVID-19 has already been an accelerant of existing trends, including increased digitization, digitalization of economic activity. I remember when we started work with the the high-level panel on digital cooperation, a few African uh, legislators would talk about that topic, but right now it's in everyone's tongues and it just shows just how a crisis can push you to do a little bit more than you thought you were able to do and can just give you that extra sense of urgency. So the trend could benefit us, that trend could benefit us as the continent because we lack the sunk cost and the consequent resistance to change of legacy, the infrastructure, and systems. So because we already don't have the sunk cost of saying, well, we had already invested in this infrastructure, we can't change. We have so much infrastructure that we can still build. So this really gives us an opportunity to just direct our investments in a way that will benefit not only individual economies, but the unification of our trade as a block. So by riding the momentum that has been given to us and gently nudging member states to make this trend permanent, the AFCFTA can certainly speed up integration. And the AFCFTA can ride this wave of an accelerated push towards a digital economy and drive the trend towards permanence in member states. And I was happy. Uh, One of the things we just had a budget speech given a couple of days ago, I think two days. And one of the things that really stood out to me was the continuous mention of digitizing government services. And that is something that we have been pushing for the longest time. And I'm hoping that we will now certainly see its implementation because we do not have a choice. And it is when we do not have a choice that reform and the reform agenda also not have uh, a choice. So throughout this pandemic, there has been a crazy spike in online transactions across Africa. And I know when we talk about that, people, well, there is no infrastructure for digital online platforms. But I want to give an example of Jumia, for example, which is called Africa's Amazon. It has seen a fourfold increase year over year with the African orders tripling. That is Jumia. And because we know that the digital economy is here to stay and a continent without legacy infrastructure, as I was saying, could benefit the most from really investing in that space, from boosting and stimulating investment in that space and ensuring that we benefit from it as we did with the expansion and diffusion of mobile phone technology. 
we have that infrastructure of mobile phone technology in place. And when we talk about the digital economy, it's not only about online, it's also about those offline solutions that can be used that are reliant on USSD and other platforms to ensure that we reach even those that do not have access to internet. The first opportunity I can just say is very clearly in the digital economy, digital education, digital health, digital trade, e-commerce, just to mention a few. This is certainly a space that we need to ensure we are focusing on and that the interest that we have on it now sticks. So from generating investment in African tech firms to rationalizing patchwork regulatory systems, there are immense gains to find approach on a digital economy. And I was given a talk a couple of days ago to a group of investors and I said you know particularly on African tech that we invest on African tech on technology that is developed by Africans and not only say that we are going to be investing on technology in Africa but only turns out that its IP rests outside of the continent and its back office rests out of the continent we want that money to be here I have seen so many cases as minister where young people are developing an almost identical product an American and an African and an American gets uh, the, the investment over the African because of granted because of the understanding of the market better, um, but also just because they are in tune with uh, the American market. So if the American investors, European investors, African investors want to invest in African uh, in technology that serves Africa, they must and I encourage that they look at first technology that is created by Africans. And it is estimated that investment in African tech companies in 2019 was around 1.3 to 2.5 billion. Again, I have questioned where these African tech companies were, if they originated in the continent or if they from elsewhere. I am not discouraging people to come to the continent and set up here. I'm just saying we should provide equal opportunities uh, to those developers even in the continent. So one of these companies are platform-based applications which like Twitter do not require a lot of physical infrastructure and the ability to provide their services seamlessly across borders without negotiating a patchwork of regulatory regimes will be an excellent place for us to begin. So this is really a conversation to be had with uh, the regulatory uh, authorities to ensure that as uh, digital trade booms in the continent that the right regulations have been put in place that are stimulatory and accommodative. And beyond just talking about digital economy in Africa, COVID-19 has also presented an opportunity for Africa to reposition itself, particularly in the oncoming restructuring of global value chains. Some argue that this started with Trump, the US-China trade war. But when you look at it from a scholarly perspective, you get to see that moving away from China is not really something that is new. There were a lot of tariffs that were slapped on China during the Obama administration and the ones before. So it would be interesting to see how that changes. But while that conversation is still ongoing, I see an opportunity for African entrepreneurs, African investors to 
slide in there <laughs> to slide in there and find that place in uh, the global value chains so governments as i said across the world are expressing doubt in globalization contemplating economic decoupling and a pivot away from this china-centric global economy so this trend of uh, moving away from a, a china-centric global economy will really give an opportunity to us in the continent to play a role in these global value chains because Africa's absence from a great power competition and our re our refusal to choose our uh, partner of choice really places us right at a location where we can choose our role in value chains in the auto sector, in uh, pharma, in high tech and in many other manufacturing spaces. And I was saying this is particularly important for countries like Botswana that are landlocked and that are small, uh, that have been told before that they do not necessarily have a place in uh, global trade because they're small and landlocked, but the global value chain and the scale and how things are being broken down really gives an opportunity for countries like Botswana, Esotina, Lesotho, uh, Rwanda, um, and so forth to play a role in uh, global trade. At this point, just to look for more opportunities, I would encourage you to visit your ministries and uh, find out how your countries are positioning themselves and entrepreneurs to play in the AFCFTA. Because at this point, most countries and uh, customs unions have already submitted their offers and they know the products that they are willing to, uh, the products and industries that they are willing to trade in. So I mentioned all of the above because I refuse to believe that conversations around opportunities for young people and for women should always micro, that we should talk about microfinance, microcredit, micro industries, but we should, when we address young people and women about the opportunities that exist, also show the bigger spectrum of industries, of projects and opportunities that are available and also redirect capital conversations to do the same so that we can have an equitable participation of women, young people, men uh, alike in, in the economy and particularly in the AFCFTA. We have been left behind in modern markets already and we wish not to be left behind with the onset of uh, the AFCFTA. That said, I uh, would like to focus a little bit more in particular the inclusion of our indigenous economies, indigenous knowledge and indigenous products in the house because I know every time I talk about indigenous economies, there is always cynicism around indigenous economies. This is because many just think that there is no place for indigenous economies in modern economics. I have heard, whenever we've had debates, I have heard arguments that modern markets will always overtake informal sector indigenous economies and they will provide benefit for all. And I always revert by saying, well, tell that to the over 85 in the informal Africa, centuries after globalization and centuries after capitalism.
So I think what we are seeing here is that the destruction of our indigenous economies has not led people to be facilitated into modern market, but instead to remain on the waysides of the economy and to, you know, participate, to be in our informal sector, to not be full participants of the economy and to not realize the full value that could be generated in our economies. And I believe that this conversation in indigenous products, indigenous knowledge and indigenous economies is one that we should be having because it is in the sector that I believe that uh, there will be growth a large growth of SMEs, in particular women, because they are the holders and curators of such information. I believe that this is really where we will see it, or the main focus for this area will be the phase two negotiations of the agreement. And it holds a lot of opportunities, particularly in the intellectual property uh, space. So phase two of the AFCFTA negotiations should not be delayed either. We have said this before, but instead this protocol of investment and associated protocols, phase two items should really be accelerated. The protocol on IP should leverage on existing regional IP regimes such as the the Aripo. And we want to see us tapping into African knowledge that we know, African knowledge and practices that we know are so unique and have been able over generations to provide the discovery or result in the discovery of medicines and other innovative solutions. And what it needs is a flow of capital and a flow of technological transfer to ensure that that IP is modernized and it is able to be traded. Now, once we really defensively protect our IP as Africans, then we can ensure that we are able to trade it outside of the continent without it being claimed by other people and us eventually seeing our products being mass produced elsewhere and us losing opportunity and value in them. So the protocol should provide minimum requirements for the protection of traditional knowledge, genetic resources and cultural expressions and the traditional knowledge passed from generation to generation, as I have said, and I said this earlier, where is our African vaccine? Have we tried out our indigenous knowledge, our indigenous products, modernized it in such a way that we would be able to trade it across not only the continent, by the world. And it is very imperative that we, again, we look at African IP and we protect it because this will empower the communities to promote their traditional knowledge and to control their uses, to control how they are traded and to benefit from its commercialization exploit. So as I conclude, while I am very optimistic about the AFCFTA and I'm a big supporter of the project, I'd like to encourage everyone to approach this trading phase with cautious optimism. And I say cautious optimism because we have to realize that things won't work 100% from the get-go, that there will be hiccups and there will be challenges. But what is key is that we see countries and governments continue to submit how they will handle and facilitate intra-African consignments 
how they will remain committed not only to uh, tariff liberalization, but also to non-tariff barriers liberalization, and how they aspire to truly facilitate intra-African trade, including and in particular intra-industry trade, which I didn't touch on this time, but there are a lot of opportunities around intra-industry trade in Africa. I know we continue to shy away from having this conversation, but we have seen that intra-African trade in itself can also generate value. I mean, Germany and France are right next to each other, and they are both in the auto industry, and there is intra-industry trade happening in that regard. So if we're to use the European Union as a benchmark, it is evident that the operationalization and trading of the AFCFTA will be a decades-long process that will occur in phases, and it is a journey that we must all be willing to participate in and not give up in, because the danger is that when things really start to hit hiccups, that there will be inertia again, and we will go back to the 1991 Abuja Treaty phase where there's nothing happening. So we must continue to ensure that there is activity. I particularly liked it when Ghana received their first consignment that was going to be handled under the AFCFTA. And I'd like to see more uh, countries doing that just to show that there really is activity ongoing in that space. As I close, like I began, I would like to leave you with a quote from uh, Kwame Nkrumah, again from the 1963 speech. I think it is just so, so relevant. It is also a little funny that we are now in 2021 talking about aspirations from 1963. In any case, here is the closing quote. The task cannot be attached in the tempo of any other age than our own. To fall behind the unprecedented momentum of actions and events in our time will be to court failure and our own undoing. Thank you very much for listening in and I look forward to responding to your questions. Thank you so much for such an illuminating talk full of insights. Thank you for the level of detail, but explained with great clarity and also just reflecting on things that have not been on the public domain around the texture and the detail of the negotiations in the AFCFTA. You've made a number of critical comments on, on the role of women in business opportunities in ways that do not pigeonhole them, as it were, to create mini kitchens on the margins of big business where we say, you know, these are places for women, microcredits and so on. And you started off with a history of integration, putting fires on the dreams that the continent had at the end of colonialism and why it's important to keep those dreams alive. I'm going to pose some questions on some of these issues. And, and the most important questions around uh, the Africa's digital futures. And I'm very happy that you mentioned traditional knowledge. It kind of confirms some of the thinking I've been developing in my work, looking at the relationship between technology and Africa's indigenous knowledge systems. Because modernity for many means turning your back away from traditional knowledge. And we see that in languages. I mean, they, there's a subtle sublimination of indigenous languages in schools, in public discourse. And also, I mean, we participate in it by uploading our kids when they speak English very well. 
and culture and traditional knowledge systems are also tied to language. You gave a very positive narrative on Africa's future. And I really think that you, you've given us a lot to, to chew on. The first question I'm going to ask you, and some of these questions have been taken from the chat platform. The first is with respect to tariffs. Tariffs are a source of fiscal revenue for many countries, for small countries especially. And sometimes people have an unrealistic view that trade liberalization in the continent could move at a faster pace. And are there any thoughts on strategies to to create a development fund that compensates for revenue losses for small countries? I mean, one of the challenges that we've had uh, in SACU, uh, in the common revenue pool, is around the sense that some countries feel that they're contributing more than they're taking out and subsidizing countries with high you know, income per capita. You know, there's a lot of politics around, around SACU. So, so, I mean, there are all these politics, and, and I'm, I'm as optimistic as you are that we can get it right in the continent. The, the second one is around the... I mean, I sit in some of the government structures, and I, and I hear increasingly a lot of talk around localization. Everyone wants to localize supply chains. You know, South Africa wants to localize certain products that it imports and doing so could disadvantage some of the African countries. Everyone is going, you know, through this phase of relocation of supply chains. And I just wonder if we are thinking this through with the AFCFTA, perhaps we have an opportunity to build continental value chains. Maybe you can reflect on on that as well. I I will come back to some of the questions related to digital transformation in the continent. And perhaps finally on this round, someone raised a question around the, the ban on certain types of imports. And they cited your country, unfortunately. I think it's ban on import ban on horticulture and fertile eggs. And I'm sure South Africa has lots of bans or safeguard measures that could affect other African countries. So it's not just one country. I think all all countries are misbehaving at times. I think we can all just agree that the project of market unification is going to be really hard. And it is one of the reasons why the negotiations were so extensive and so lengthy. I mean, I wish I could say that the negotiations have finished. They haven't. The negotiations just really never come to an end because as and when an economic development happens, as like right now a crisis happens, obviously people, uh, countries start to think more about how do they protect their industries better? How do they ensure that they are citizens? Again, let's not forget that the people that are negotiating here are petitions and they're all looking at their own mandates at the end of the day. So there is a lot of politics that goes into it, into, okay, now there are riots in some other uh, province because I have opened up for this particular product. So all of those things get taken into consideration. And some countries, uh, there was a question earlier, why is it some countries have ratified and others haven't? Because some are still on are going through a, a process of consulting with the stakeholders to ensure that the sectors that they intend on liberalizing are the ones that we can all agree 
on. But if we just rope in the ban on safeguard measures uh, that are being used by a lot of countries and link it to what I just said, you find that it's really a reactionary model to what appears to be a flood of foreign products into the market that overpower domestic produce. And I do not think that this will ever stop. Even in the most developed markets, there are still safeguard measures that are uh, put into place. And safeguard measures that we will continue to see will not be only for Africa, African countries against each other, but will be as well to the rest of the world. So the only thing that we can really say here is countries must desist from protectionist policies and must, where possible, see how best to support their domestic uh, players, how to buffer, boost their domestic players in order for them to compete much better with the foreign players. And that can be done in the form of providing, I don't want to say subsidies because that is such a, a contested issue, but by providing technical support in how they do business, preparing the SPSs, so providing for their standards and ensuring that their safeguards are in place and so forth. And when it comes to Again, it's the same with the localization. I was saying you're giving me flashbacks because <laughs> you're giving me flashbacks and I don't know how much of uh, my previous work I'm allowed to share. But during SACU meetings, you know, there are always issues that come up, particularly on localization and regional value chains. And I see someone brought it up in the comments here, like how do we start talking about continental market when we are failing to talk about a regional market? And that continues to be some of the issues issues that I had or engagements that happen, negotiations that continuously happen at ministerial and at summits. And what I can tell you is it might not seem to be a sweeping reform for regionalization, but if you start to look closely at individual industries, you will see the convergence happening in regional industry uh, development because there are some of agreements that happen as and when time goes. It takes so much time because again, the vested interests, the political mandates that are there, but what has been submitted at the AFCFTA, you will find that it's something that has already been agreed at those regional blocks and it has been submitted as a region. I'll give you an example. When we were negotiating both for the AFCFTA and for uh, the tripartite free trade area, we had to negotiate as SACU with the EAC and see what it is, the concessions we were willing to give one another and some of those then we would also pass them on to the AFCFTA. So it would appear as a tick like, okay, so SACU and EAC have agreed on on these matters, now they can sort of apply to other regions and, and so forth. And then uh, the most contested issue is obviously tariffs and their impact on government revenues. This was, it's hot. It's not only for tariff liberalization, it is also for digital trading because how do you then, uh, you know, the, the issue is how do you then add customs to such products? You know, how do you know their origin when the rules of origin on e-platforms, they're not so clear and so forth. And just to give an example of why this is a contested issue, some countries in Africa get over 
50, 60, 70% of their government revenues from customs revenues. So you can imagine that it is not easy at all for some governments to be negotiating on tariff liberalization and them losing out on customs revenue, which is why it's so important that we then talk more broadly on trade, on how we share wealth generated from liberal trade, how we ensure that there will be intra-industry trade, that there will be the development of regional value chains. When we protect one sector, and I'll give this sector, I don't know if I'm up to, but it is the, the knowledge that I have. I'll give an example with we protect the auto sector in South Africa. Now, my thinking is if we protect a sector as in, in South Africa, then parts of that sector. So along the value and the supply chain of that sector, there should be some distribution to the rest of the region that is helping to protect because we have all agreed that we will slap on tariffs on cars that are imported from outside the union and they should be more expensive than those that are made in the union. And so if we're going to do that, then the brake pads should be made in Namibia, the spark plugs should be made in a Sotini, the tires or whatever should be made in Bazana. But you get the point that we should liberalize even the supply chain so that we all benefit from the wealth generated from liberalizing trade or from protecting trade. A lot of questions on the chat box. We will take two directly and then I'll ask you questions that you could answer when when you close. Uh, One of the questions is the alignment of Botswana and Namibia with oil and gas industry at a time when the rest of the world is mitigating climate change and also the continued loss of biodiversity. They would like your view on on this. There's a question about the future of ecotourism in Africa and the role of women in in the sector. Others are very complimentary that the AFCFTA is giving hope for Africa's industrial capacity. And also, just to emphasize, I mean, the points you made uh, around the liberalization of value chains in the continent. I think we've not been creative to enough to do that. And my view is that um, it's because of the vested import competing sectors in South Africa and also the the close nature of the auto sector in South Africa uh, absorbing a large part of government subsidies. I think two thirds of government subsidies go to to that sector and it's overlayered with, uh, with all manner of rebates and in ways, of course, that uh, hinder the development of the auto supply chains in the rest of the continent. We were sadly a country that destroyed your auto uh, industry around yes. uh, 2000. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we can certainly have a debate on that. Would it be impossible to grow the supply chains outside of South Africa into Botswana, Asatini, Namibia, into the Saku countries? Because I think it is not impossible because uh, what matters is the productivity and the timely delivery to the factory and the cost associated with that. And if governments say Botswana is willing to give some of the concessions, incentives, put them in place to support, say, the, what was it, $10 million Mercedes-Benz plant that was set up in Port Elizabeth, then we should be able to start those negotiations at national level and not just with the companies. Because the minute you go to the companies, I mean, they are also talking about how already uh, vested with whatever the uh, government 
are and how they could be mitigations amongst other things. Anyway, we digress. But what I want to say is that I believe it's possible if we choose to work together on regional uh, industrial development. I'll say one last set of questions and then you could close with those. Uh, it's an area that is also close to my heart, which is digital transformation in, in, in the continent, the importance of investing in technology. Uh, some of the sessions that we've had uh, with venture capitalists and, and also just looking at what's happening around the world. One of the things that they raise, especially in countries like South Africa and other countries in the continent, is the ecosystem challenges related to the role of government through enabling policies, the incentives to incentivize venture capital, as well as the right amount of digital skills. I mean, on the policy front, as you'd be aware, we we caught up in the spectrum release tangle between the industry and government and the industry is taking government to court. We talked about Spectrum over a decade ago. It's still not yet been been released and, and that hobbles entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, you know, if, you, if one looks at you know, the, the role of connectivity and broadband Spectrum in, in promoting tech entrepreneurship, as well as the overall ecosystem for small and medium enterprises. What can governments do, also learning from the examples in your in your country and what you've seen in the continent and, and elsewhere around the world? Thanks. Thanks, Prof. So I, I wanted to start off by saying on that ecosystem point, and I, I know this is one question that people ask a lot, like how, how will we compete? At this point, really, the competition would be based on how reformist a government is, how they ensure the ease of doing business, the, the ease and protection of investments, and not just foreign investments, but domestic investments. And this is where also the protocol on investment is so important because we need to, on a global scale, talk about how we are going to protect investments and safeguard investments in the continent and ensure that the capital flight that we're seeing, even Africans going into some islands, doesn't happen, that that capital comes back and becomes in our continent for the infrastructure needs that we have. I mean, we know that running on a deficit of uh, financing infrastructure, and we have been warned that if we do not invest enough on infrastructure, that Africa risks falling into another economic recession. So we really need to find ways creatively of fixing and reforming the ecosystem that encourages doing business in our and that encourage and stimulates investments and sees the capital flight that happened, you know, come back uh, to be invested in the continent. Now, when it comes to digital and uh, uh, Afri-tech, there is also a, a concern on uh, the that we do not have enough resources that support African governments to know more on policing Afri-tech and the digital spaces. I mean, even if we look at international finance, it said, I don't have the latest figure, but I think it was something like 4% of all multilateral finance in that's available. Only 4% goes towards ICT and 1% of that 1% goes towards policy making of ICT industries. So that is very dismal and needs to be changed because when we work on the regulatory space and when we start to change our mindset 
particular sector, then things really start to move and something around. Also, there was a question on climate change and continued loss of biodiversity. I didn't really capture it well, but what I can say is there has been a push for uh, the AFCFTA to take into account uh, climate change and the fact that a lot of African countries will be affected by uh, climate change. And we need to start working now on adaptation strategies in trading and ensure that they are greener and much earth-friendly ways of us trading. That gets us to the end of, of the discussion. I just want to say that this has been the most attended lecture since we started in April 2020. At the peak, we had 600 attendees for 30 on the live Facebook and about 197 on Zoom. I mean, this is the peak of our our attendance ever. So we really want to thank you for making time to, to come and, and engage with our audience. Really appreciate the time you took to, to prepare and, and acknowledge that you, you've had to shelve other things and also it, it's into your family time. So we don't take that for granted. And we, we really hope that we, we can have you again on another theme that is key to Africa's future. Please accept our expressions of, of gratitude. It's, it's been really, really incredibly valuable. I, I saw some of the comments on, on chat. With those words, I would like to close uh, the public lecture and have a good evening. Thank you very much, Prof. And uh, thank you, everybody, once again, for honoring me with your time. Till next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by, by, by the Viz School of Governance. For more information, visit their website on www.wits.ac.za/wsg.